It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Every crime scene provides two types of evidence. Sometimes a piece of evidence points specifically to a suspect with great clarity, fingerprints or DNA, and sometimes evidence is less clear. It's cloaked. Evidence can be confusing. Now, this is a quote or paraphrase from um, the former cold case detective whose expertise has helped solve countless of crimes. Um, he's n- not involved in the Gabby Petito murder case, but he's going to talk about that a little bit later. However, that quote is from his book, and his name is Jay Warner Wallace, his new book called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Now, Warner used his skills to verify one of the greatest crimes of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His investigation so convincing that he went from being a skeptical atheist to an ardent believer in the man from Galilee. After his first book, Cold Case Christianity, uh, was hugely successful, uh, he then launched an entire ministry of classes, lectures, articles, podcasts, and more, and all can be found at the coldcasechristianity.com website. His latest book, Person of Interest, takes a really broad look at the evidence surrounding Jesus' appearance on the historical stage, the time in which he was born, the prophecies in the Old Testament that predict his birth, and the overwhelming influence Jesus has had on every aspect of world culture, music, art, literature, science. And Jay Jay Warner Wallace joins me now. Welcome. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's just amazing um, the things that you come up with. And I have to credit your cold case detective background because the way you approach the crucifixion and just Jesus's own presence and the prophecies, only someone who was coming at it from a totally skeptical viewpoint would come up with the things you've come up with. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but a lot of that, you know, is just the nature of working cold cases. You know, these are unsolved uh, homicides and therefore there's no statute of limitations, right? So these things are old. Sometimes they're three decades old before I even touch the case. And and then and then we had great detectives back in the day who worked really hard. Sometimes these these folks worked for several years trying to solve the case and just couldn't finish it, couldn't couldn't get it solved. But that means they, they turned over a lot of stones. And now we had to come in years later. And sometimes time helps you, right? People mm-hmm. change their their minds about things are more open to being you know, interviewed, that kind of thing. But a lot of times what we're trying to do is be more creative. Like we're, we're asking the question, it's, it's clear that a set of dominoes started to fall and created a line of dominoes falling, but we're going to be looking kind of outside that line to see, is there some other, you know, secondary or, you know, tangential uh, domino that fell that maybe was, if you just been a little more creative, you would have looked over there. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do in these cases. So that's what we're trying to do also with the case for Jesus. Yeah. You know, your expertise has been on, you know, ma- you know mainstream medium network. Work TV, um, you know, you're no slouch in that in that in that in that area of cold case investigations. But why did you begin investigating Jesus? I mean, you were an atheist, an expert cold case detective. You know, what prompted you to investigate Jesus? 
Well, I, I got kind of snookered into it <laughs> because you know I was not interested in uh, in Christians. And to be real honest with you, I, I look, I didn't know anybody um, uh, growing up who was a Christian. Um, I, I grew up here in Los Angeles County. Um, didn't really uh, know anybody growing up who invited me to church or anything like that. But my wife was interested in going to church once we had kids. Just and I thought, well, I'll go as a non-believer. You know, my mm-hmm. dad will do that. He'll go as a non-believer. So I thought I'll just go as a non-believer to honor Susie. Um, but I got my first experience in church. I'm sitting in this, you know, this big evangelical church, and the pastor looked pretty ordinary guy. He said, you know, Jesus is the smartest man. He said a lot of things, but one of the things he said that stuck in my head was that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. Hmm. And I thought to myself, is that true? Hmm. And so I didn't own a Bible, but I bought one, just a pew Bible and started kind of going through it. Now, now look, I will tell you that I was so skeptical of the New Testament that for the most part, I really wasn't interested in it as a document about divinity. I was just trying to mine out the red letters to see like, what is, why does this guy think that Jesus is so smart? And that's what started it all for me. Wow. I mean, but then you you were obsessed with it. I mean, you, I mean, you talk about re- waking up at four o'clock in the morning to investigate and research this before you even went to your day job. Yeah, well, and I can tell you too, I was I happened to be working undercover at the time. And so when you're working undercover, you have a lot of downtime in a unit, you're a surveillance team, you're you're waiting for the bad guy to go mobile to, to start moving around. And sometimes he's he's drunk all day or he's high all day. And mm. so you might sit at a location for hours and hours. And that that benefited me because I started bringing that stuff into my into my plane car and and sitting and reading all day. And so I mean it was a uh, quite a bit of a journey for me, and that's really one of the things that uh, I talk about in the book. Yeah, you have an approach, uh, a unique approach, really, to investigating cold cases. You use sort of this fuse and fallout technique. Explain what that is. So, so if you've got somebody who, who uh, plans a crime and then commits the crime and and then reports, like so, for usually it's husbands and wives that this happens to, but sometimes it's a business partner, it's somebody you know real well, and so you you kill this person and then you claim that that person ran off. So I had a fight with my wife last night and she hasn't returned, and and then this goes on for weeks, and what starts off as a missing persons report ends up being pretty obviously a murder. But the problem with those kinds of cases is that if you never recover a body, if he's successful about getting rid of the body, the longer this stays open without a body, the harder it is, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, if you wait too long, and I've got one case, for example, I think we waited about 30 years, but no one even looked at it a second time until about six years after the case was initially filed as a missing person. Well, six years, that gives you all kinds, I mean, he had moved, the house had been remodeled, there wasn't a single piece of physical evidence, no one even took photographs of the house back in the day. So you got no idea what it even looked like on the night that she'd vanished. So what do you do in cases where you have nothing from the crime scene? Well, you talk about this with the jury and you say, look, on the day that she vanished, if this was something nefarious, it was like a bomb went off, some explosive bomb went off of anger or whatever. But all bombs are preceded by a fuse that burned down to the detonation of the bomb. And once the bomb explodes, you've got shrapnel all over the blast radius. So we can make a case from just the fuse and the fallout in the timeline even though we don't have a body or any evidence from a crime scene. So that's something that, you know, we've talked about, you, you mentioned a, a, a very well-known case today that is out mm-hmm, there that right. we're for a period of time, we've got no body. And so the question becomes, you know, everyone's wondering, is this really a missing? Sometimes it's more obvious than not, right? But mm-hmm. I've worked cases where people were all convinced that she's just missing, that he he managed to convince the victim's family that she had just run off. I have one case where we took about 30 years before we circled back to it. 
And when we finally did, her family had never once called to say, hey, is anyone working our daughter's case? Wow. They had so they were so convinced that she had just run off that they never once called us. That's one of the reasons why it stayed open as long as it did. But in the end, you can make a case from the fuse and the fallout. And that's the approach I took with, with Jesus as well. Look, if I didn't trust the New Testament, well, you could actually make a case for the deity and historicity of Jesus just from the fuse and fallout of history. Wow, I want to get to the book in just a second, but I you you brought up the, the today's case, the Gabby Petito case. We do have a body, but one of the reasons why we do have a body is because it became such an explosive story that everybody was looking for it. Everybody was looking yeah. for her, mm-hmm. and that really aided investigators in finding that body location. But if you're looking at this case, what would be what's your overall view of first of all is Brian Laundrie probably the one who killed her. And two, I mean, are they, have they investigated properly? Is there something, some mistake that they've made? Well, I think so far, I mean, here's what I'm seeing online that I look at and I listen to it and I'm thinking, well, the experts who are testifying on that probably never, never worked a cold case because so some of the questions that I, I get about this case, for example, are number one, um, why haven't they released the details of, of the, the, the body from the autopsy? Why haven't they said more about the manner of death or what they discovered in the autopsy? And, and I've even heard people say that's very unusual that they would actually, it's not unusual because I would never as an investigator want any of those details to be made public until I've got the guy in custody and I've completed my first interview with him. Mm-hmm. Because the reality of it is, is that I don't want anyone to know the manner of death because even the person, our goal is not just to take somebody and book him. Our goal is to, have, to, to, to file a case that is strong enough to win a conviction in court. So I'm already thinking about what his defense is going to be. And a lot of that's going to be based on what the body condition is. Right? Is it mm-hmm. just was she strangled? If so, I'm going to, have to account for being strangled. It, it, was she pushed off a cliff? If so, I could argue that this was an accident. I could argue this was something she was despondent and jumped off the cliff. You see, there's lots of other alternative explanations. Right. But I'm not going to release any of that so that um, um, a, a set of attorneys in the future can look back at those. No, the best thing to do is to release no information once the interview's done. And you kind of captured his side of it without him even knowing what you know. Well, now you're in a position to release that information. Why did they? So, but why did they release the, that it was a homicide, but not say what the cause of death is? Why would they say it's a homicide? How would they know for sure if they haven't released the cause of death? Well, what's interesting about it is I'm not sure how much they've actually said about that. But 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 also remember, there's a warrant for his arrest, but not as a suspect in a homicide. Mm-hmm. Of course, he is, I'm sure, a suspect, a person of interest in this homicide. But they actually have him on the uh, unwarranted use or on, on the use of her credit cards, of her debit card. So they're just finding a way to make sure he's arrestable. But they're not, They're again, they're just trying to take the steps. It, it does you no good to release too much information. If you're going to fault on one side or the other, fault on releasing too little information. You can release too much. You can really never release too little. And so that's why if you're smart here, you just hold your cards. It's going to give you more power to be able to talk about, you know, uh, with, with the suspect when you finally have them. And the other question I get too, though, Lauren, is, well, do you think he's still alive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think, well, I think he is still alive. And I'll tell you why I think that, because it's, 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 if, um, and I think he's at, look, most of the time, what you see is people will do what's easiest for them. We always think, oh, because it's possible he fled the country. Mm-hmm. Well, how hard would that be to do? Be, I mean, that's not an easy thing to do on the run. 
Right. It's very easy though, just to kind of step off into the to the area that's closest to your home that you can navigate well, and and then you're going to be on the move. And and the reality of it is, is that most people um, don't become suicidal until they think they're going to be caught and spend the rest of their life in jail. While they think they're not going to be caught, they're not suicidal. So what ends up happening is at the very end, right? It'll be at the very end when he feels like, okay, I'm now caught, Mm -hmm. that he might do something to himself. In the meantime, I expect him to be moving. This is one of the reasons why we haven't caught him yet, right? Because let's think about it. They found, I guess, some places where they think he might have camped or there's some like fire. Great. If he had killed himself, they'd find a body there. It'd be over. But the fact that they haven't yet is because he's on the move. So I think he probably is on the move in the area that's closest for him to reach from the last place he was seen. That's almost always what happens here. So yeah, now what? Now here's what's interesting. Why do we think that he's a suspect? Why do we? I heard somebody say that maybe there was a serial killing kind of a thing going on. Right, right. Well, well, look, that's why we use the fuse in the fallout. We know in the fuse that they were having some domestic violence issues, right? We've mm-hmm. got actually reports of this. We got a recording of this, and then we know in the fallout that he immediately ran. There's lots of ways I might behave if, for example, I came home and she went home and she didn't get out. Well, I, I left her. You'd probably be involved in the search for her. Right. But when you see behaviors in the fallout, you can kind of assess whether or not somebody is involved. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for, you know, if it's your husband, for example, who kills you, how soon is he disposing of your property? I mean, if he thinks you just ran off, you should be coming back at some point. You're not going to dispose of your property too soon. Right. Right. But what is he doing in the fallout that makes him look like he has more information than he ought to have if he's not the killer? And what about and what about the parents? What about the parents though too? And, and I mean, and I want to move on to the book, but I want to, I really want to talk about the idea that when her parents filed a missing persons report, wouldn't it make sense to bring them all in for questioning, even if they have an attorney? I mean, wouldn't that be proper procedure to talk to well, them. I, yes. And I'm sure that, that, that there was an attempt uh, to, to talk to everybody. That, that's the first thing we would do, right? We would, we would call and, and talk to everybody who maybe had a point of contact with her. It's not just that you're saying, well, Hey, what do you know about what happened last week? You're going to want to know, has anybody tried to contact you? Have you gotten any hangup phone calls? Have you gotten anything that might be construed as her calling you or trying to make contact with her? Also, can you tell me who are the other people in her life who she might make contact with that I can call to see if she has made contact with them? Where are the places she might go? You know, now, of course, you're also going to be talking about, well, what do you know about her relationship with her boyfriend leading up to this? Because you're going to be working it from both sides. But you're gonna. There's lots of questions you're gonna want to ask, and so yeah. And by the way, where where else would you start? If you're not starting with the geographical search, you're gonna start with the people who knew her best, who she might be contacting in the future, or might you might know something about the past. And that's with the, with the first point of contact for all these these interviews. Well, I want to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast with uh, Jane Warner Wallace. We're talking about the person of interest, and it's really why Jesus matters in a world that rejects the Bible. But I couldn't resist making him comment on uh, the Gappy Petito case because it is a case that's in the, in, the, in, in the front and center of the news these days. But we're going to take a break right now. We'll be right back. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with Jay Warner Wallace talking about his book, Person of Interest. Um, this is Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And Jay, I want to get to some of these things about 
um, why you took on investigating um, Christianity. I mean, your book, Cold Case Christianity, just spawned this entire ministry, really, um, that, you know, leads us to taking another look at Jesus from a much different point of view. Um, One of the things that's fascinating, uh, you analyze in history, because this is really what popped out to me, and you're looking through the lens of religious beliefs up until that point, not just from Judaism, which is... You know the sort of you know precursor of Christianity, um, but other religions is around the world. But you, what people believed, and you see something that very few people have seen: um, that most belief systems were kind of primed for such a person as this. And you say in the book, if the true God wanted to interact with humans by um, meeting the divine expectations of the greatest number of people possible, he would arrive at a time in which all these expectations and mythological deities overlap. Right. That's that's powerful. Well, what's been said is often as a skeptical, and this was me, you know, many years ago, um, because I was 35 when I first started doing this investigation, Mm -hmm. I would have said, yeah, I'm familiar with a lot of mythologies that seem to have similarities. You know, like for example, you know, is, is Jesus just a copycat savior, another, you know, dying and rising Messiah or another dying and rising deity in a long line of dying and rising deities? Well, not not really. If you if you really examine the mythologies, you'll see that the details, you know, the devil's in the details and, and, and the details between all the different myths are very different. But they do share overarching um, um, expectations. In other words, overarching characteristics. So, for example, uh, a lot of these, most of these will enter into the world in an unnatural or supernatural way. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll just come out of the side of a mountain uh, and leave in a cave. They'll be birthed out of another deity's hip or, or thigh. They'll, they'll, you know, there's these odd ways they enter into the world. But, but why, you know, even Jesus, for example, is born of a, of a virgin. So, so the question, though, is, well, why wouldn't we? Look, if you're thinking about God in antiquity, mm-hmm. you probably are thinking that he has certain divine attributes. And you've listed those in your mind, and you actually might create myths from the minds of poets, as C.S. Lewis said. These are the myths, are man's myths, not meaning to say they're lies, to say or they're falsehoods, but to say they are stories about God from the minds of men. But it turns out that in every culture, in antiquity, uh, we think alike. And, and why wouldn't that surprise us? We're designed and we're created in the image of God, regardless of where you are on the planet. Yeah. And, and therefore, you might think about God and expect certain acts. So I listed 15 of these common attributes, even though the ancient myths only possess maybe six to 10 of these, and they're all different depending on the myth. But there are about these like these 15 things I'm seeing over and over and over and over again. Is, this part, of the, think, is this part of the fallout you talk about in the book? In the, the What's the fallout? No, this is the fuse that the leads fuse. up to the arrival of Jesus. <sighs> because if you think about it, this fuse is burning spiritually. There's an expectation that God's going to look kind of like this. This is why Paul's on Mars Hill in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And he's standing talking to people and saying, you folks are really religious <laughs> because there's all kinds of gods represented here. I'm here to tell you who the true God is. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why he sees this is because we are, you know, this is even true today. You know, the vast majority of humans on planet Earth believe in a higher power of some nature. 
we have an expectation. Researchers have actually done work on this, even atheist researchers, and discovered that young people are born with this kind of expectation about deity. We have a tendency to look at the, the created world and see design features that we want to attribute to a creator. As a matter of fact, it's even been said that this expectation of theism is something that's bred in the bone. You know, it's part of our DNA. It's not the default position for humans, it turns right, out, right. based on all the studies. It's not atheism. It's some form of theism. Well, this has been true in antiquity as well. And so these expectations then, although the ancient myths only have, say, six to ten each, mm-hmm. and I list all these in the book, when you get to Jesus of Nazareth, he alone possesses all 15 attributes in their most robust nature. Now, why would that be so? Not only that, he he matches the description of the archetypal characters of the of the Jews. So the pagans have expectations that Jesus matches. And then, of course, if you look at the rough outline of the story of Moses or David or Jonah, you will find that the, the, the shadow, the typing, which is what Paul says on Mars Hill, that there's a type, the type that was predicted by the Jews, who is manifest, who is, who is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Why would God do it this way? Yeah. Why would God take the expectations of the ancient non-Jews and, and and the expectations of the ancient Jews and, and and actually meet those expectations in the person of Jesus? Well, it comes down to this. That the more that the expected meets the expectations of the expector, the greater the response. It's as simple as that, right? I mean, right, you know, right. if you ordered pizza and a guy shows up like, you know, from a, the local taco, taco joint, you're thinking, I wasn't expecting that. And you might have <laughs> opened the door for him. I didn't, I didn't that's not, my, not my order, but it is your order, but it is, he looks different. It doesn't look like he's from the pizza joint. He's not dressed that way. Okay, fine. Your expectations will actually lead you to certain conclusions. And it turns out that Jesus meets the expectations of the ancients who were expecting God. But now what is the fallout? of Jesus' appearance in history, what would that be? Well, everything, it's sad because I think most of our young people are, have, have really been raised without, I mean, I didn't learn any of this in school. I was in public schools here in Los Angeles County my whole life. Well, there uh, you go about UCLA. public schools, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went to, went to UCLA, never had any idea of the impact of Jesus and his followers in the most important things that I would have said as an, like I was an artist before I became a, a police officer mm-hmm. and I was an architect. So <clears throat> for me, the most important things, uh, aspects of culture I held as an atheist were going to be uh, visual arts, uh, music, literature, uh, education, science. These are the things that matter most to me. Right. Well, it turns out that those five things are so deeply indebted to the worldview inaugurated by Jesus and to the way it was enacted in the world by his followers that you they wouldn't even exist as you know them today if not for Jesus. And, I, and none of that, you have a huge impact on those areas. From those areas alone, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus so that if every New Testament had been destroyed, you can reconstruct every detail of the New Testaments from those five aspects of culture. Let me, wow. let me give you an example of this. Let's say, for example, you were interested in sending your kids to a, a nice university. Well, it turns out the universities, the modern university you're thinking of today, in which you have a body of students that goes to a campus where there's a faculty of, of, of professors who teach them, and after they complete a certain course of study, they are awarded a diploma. That, that nature of the modern university is Christian. It arises out of the cathedral schools and then the first three universities, modern universities established by Christians at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. As a matter of fact, if you were to Google the top 10 universities in the world today, and you use a number of different metrics, so let's say you have the top 15, all 15 
are founded by Christians, even though today they may not acknowledge Jesus at all. But if you would go visit those campuses, take a flight, go visit those campuses all over the world. Here's what you're going to discover. The original buildings in which they taught classes are still on the campus grounds. And those buildings contain the etchings, the stained glass, the Bible verses of Jesus of Nazareth. And from just the campuses alone, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus so that you cannot erase him by simply destroying the New Testament. You'd have to destroy the physical campuses of the top 15 universities in the world, because that's what you can do. That's the kind of influence. Not only does he influence this this part of culture, yeah. his, his fingerprints are still all over it. It's just amazing to think about those universities and how we're talking about them today as sort of indoctrinating students in sort of a secular humanist kind of ideology, um, which is a shame because they're trying to wipe out, you know, Christianity from from the campuses. And even in Harvard, the head of their um, their their theology, their seminary or whatever, is an atheist, basically. Um, yeah, it, well, it's they've really... just got a chaplain who's now who's now an atheist as a chaplain. So yeah. So we're, we're definitely seeing a shift, but what's interesting is that none of this, I mean, it's because of that, and I talk about this in the book, four or five catalyst igniters, it's because of the uh, worldview initiated by Jesus that this kind of educational process, look, Christians have always been people of the book. And what does Jesus commission his, his disciples to do? Not to go out and, and, and convert people. No, go make disciples. Well, discipleship is a teaching process. So in essence, what, what Jesus does is he, he ignites and, and, and catalyzes an entire educational system that has to be in place to make disciples. This is why, for example, when Christians go into regions of the world where they don't read or write, they end up teaching them how to read and write and actually translating the materials for their scripture because you, it's a process by what I'm going to teach you about Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to give you the skills necessary. And this is the kind of, of igniter that, that, that was underneath and behind so much of education worldwide. What, what, you know, a lot of people, and especially, you know, modern people coming out of secular universities, they say that, that Christianity is just another religion, like every other religion. All religions are basically equal. I know on your website you you really debunk that, but you know what is your take when you hear that? Well, I mean, look, in the end, if they can all be wrong, but they can't all be right because they make competing truth claims. So the nature of God is different according to religion. The nature of who Jesus is is different according to religious worldview. So they could all be wrong, but because they make contrary and contradictory claims, they can't all be right. Now, one could be right and the rest wrong, or they could all be wrong, but they can't all be right. So I think when someone says, you know, all paths lead to God, well, only if you're confused about what each path says. Well, here's what's <laughs> it is interesting. One of the areas I looked at in terms of the fallout are world religions. And it's interesting, all of those world religions that follow Christianity in the timeline in the fallout, like Islam or Baha'i or Hare Krishna or mm -hmm. um, Ahmadi Muslims, whatever it may be, uh, the, if they follow Jesus, they all end up incorporating Jesus in some way, right? So you'll see that Jesus is on the pages of the Quran. Yeah. He is mentioned by Baha'u'llah of the Baha'i faith. But what's interesting is even those religions that precede Jesus, accommodate Jesus. So as Hinduism moves into the common era, as Buddhism moves into the common era, they have to make room for Jesus in their worldview. And you will see the leaders of those religious systems will always hat tip Jesus in some way. They'll say, you know, he's with the, he fits within our, our religious construct. He's a, an enlightened man on the way to Buddhahood or all the different ways they may accommodate Jesus. 
interestingly, now all world religions have something to say about Jesus so that if you're living in a world right now where Christianity doesn't exist, you know something about Jesus just from your religious worldview because your leaders or your scriptures have either mentioned, merged, or modified to accommodate Jesus. At the same time, Jesus was, you know, Buddhism preceded Jesus. Hindra, uh, uh, Indra and Hinduism and, and, and Krishna and Zoroaster. And meanwhile, Jesus says nothing about them. Those who follow Jesus end up hat tipping Jesus, but Jesus followed many that he never even mentioned. He says, no, you know, I'm the light of the world. And, and only you only get to the father through me. Uh, he's the only way, according to Jesus. And, and that's, way, and that, that's that, a hard truth. That's a hard truth for, for anybody. Even 2000 years ago, that was a hard truth. Well, look, I've worked cases. I had a case from 1979. There were eight potential suspects in that case. This woman was, was murdered in 79. And we had eight potential suspects. I knew that the more I investigated these eight guys, that one was eventually going to stand out from the others. He was going to be different. He was going to have a unique opportunity and unique access to her, maybe a unique ability to build a weapon that the other seven were not going to have. And his uniqueness eventually separates him from the crowd. And when you have somebody who's unique like that, you should probably pay attention them. Same thing happens here with Jesus. Every other leader, every other has a set of rules and things you must do in order to gain access to God. Then Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, no, I'm the oddball here. There's nothing you can do. You're so fallen and so deeply flawed that really anything you do would not amount to much in the eyes of a holy, perfect, morally perfect God. Instead, it's what I do for you. That unique approach sets him apart. And also, he also says, unlike all these other guys who say you can include me in their system, I'm telling you, folks, you can't include them in our system. This is the truth about how you get to God. He's so uniquely positioned amongst the candidates, right, of all the mm -hmm. other suspects that are out there that you should pay attention. As a matter of fact, if you're going to start a spiritual journey, you might as well start with Jesus because all the other systems are going to mention him anyway. Why not start with the person they're mentioning? You might as well start here. Um, before we go, I, want, I really want to talk about, you know, why Jesus matters to you personally, um, because it's always an interesting phenomenon when an atheist becomes a, not just a Christian, but a very, very faithful Christian. Why does Jesus matter to you personally? Well, I think um, it, you, if you'll find that, that the most unforgiving people are people who don't think they have anything they need forgiveness for. Um, this is true of Simon when he invites Jesus to his home. And the woman pours the oil on, 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 and the perfume on Jesus's feet. And Simon doesn't even so much go so far as to wash his feet when he comes in. And he says to Simon, you know, she understands how much she needs to be forgiven for. Simon didn't. And so I think that part of what it is at some point, all of us, if you trust what the scriptures say about Jesus, and I had to do some work to know that I could trust them. At some point you have to look and say, do I trust what the scriptures have to say about me? And that's when it all changes. That's when you move from belief that to belief in. And that's what happened for me. Um, I, I got to a point where the evidence seemed just, I'm a cumulative case guy. That's how I make all my cases in criminal trials. So that the cumulative case for Jesus, both inside the crime scene of the scriptures, I talk about that in cold case Christianity, and outside the crime scene in history, that's what person of interest is about, was so overwhelming that I, okay, I, I, now I'm able to, okay, my guard was down. I knew that they were telling me something true about Jesus. And then I was willing to listen to what they had to say about me. And here's what it is. They, they, they described me perfectly. They described me in my mm -hmm. fallen condition, 
perfectly. And once you know you have a need for a, a savior, it's nice to know that there is one. And, and that's where I, it landed. So like people will say, when you write a book, who's your audience? I know that good authors are trying to figure out who their audience is before they start. I, that's not me. I just am amazed at who Jesus is. And like anything you're excited about, I just want to tell others. <laughs> that's it. I want you to see what I, what I, I want you to hear about what I discovered, what I see in the evidence. And, and, and that, that's, it's, out of, it's out of that exuberance, I hope, that most of us are writing books about Jesus. Uh, I don't have an audience in mind. If it, if it helps you, great. All I know is I met this guy. Yeah. And it, he changed everything. And, and I'll tell you how I got there because I want you to get there too. Wow. The, uh, well, the book is called Person of Interest, um, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. And I think, um, Jay Warner Wallace, thank you so much for being here. Any last words you want to tell people about Person of Interest and the any features, unique features in the book that they should you know, be, be looking for? Well, you know, we have a, a website called personofinterestbook.com. I can give you a peek into the book. You know, I'm a visual person because I came out of the visual arts. So I, there's 400 illustrations in a book that's about 250 pages long. So it's very, it's kind of like a part graphic novel, part murder mystery. I'm going to walk you through a mystery involving yeah. Tammy Hayes and how she was killed. And then I'm also going to walk you through the evidence from Jesus and tell you a little bit about my personal story. So it's kind of a combination of a number of things. And I just hope that it, it, in the end, if all of this does not help you uh, uh, either have confidence that Jesus is who you already know him to be or uh, brings you to a place where maybe you're willing to look at Jesus for the first time, then it's all for nothing. So I, I hope that people will use the book that way. Yeah, and the fascinating thing about the uh, the investigation into that murder is really interesting in the book. Um, and I, even for that reason, buy the book because it really is this insight into how someone without even a body, an investigator, can actually look at um, and investigate a crime that is, uh, what is it, decades old or certainly, certainly a number, a number of yeah, years old. Yeah, like three decades old, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. it, was, it really was fascinating. Thank you so much, Jay Warner Wallace. Go get the book and also check out uh, coldcasechristianity.com and personofinterest.com. And uh, thank you so much for being on the Lighthouse Faith podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you, Lauren. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.